Our sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You are such eager listeners, so eager that when I turn my mic on, it blows your ears out. So sorry. They're all waving at me in the back going, what? So let's start again. Let's begin with prayer to make our hearts even more eager to receive the word from our risen king. God, we thank you. We thank you for your kindness to us. That in our darkness, in our wandering, in our shame, in our guilt... In our weakness, we, we don't deserve such blessings. And before we were born, before we existed, Christ came into this world and died for us. And now, now God, we see the purpose of it all. In His resurrection, we are made to live again. Though we were born in transgression and sin, born by nature, children of wrath, But God, who is rich in mercy, loved us by sending his son. And it is by faith now that we tune our ears to hear. That we give our attention to our risen king. That we long for his return. That we may be raised with him as well. Make his name famous in our own hearts and in our city today. Amen. There's this phenomenon in human behavior that modern researchers have called the Zagarnik effect, which says that people will pay much more attention to some unfinished task or uncomplete story. That's why I think infomercials are so captivating. You know, the foolishness of their advertising But you're strangely drawn to it, right? These infomercials have these characters, these people showing how to solve 
a really ordinary household chore, household task, but they're having the hardest time. It seems quite ridiculous. From struggling to open a pickle jar or trying to put your socks on and you throw out your back. It's just terrible. You're, you're trying to put some saran wrap on your, on your leftover lunch and it's, then it's all over you for some reason. You, you just can't reach the remote that somehow you misplaced on top of the kitchen cabinets. You're trying to roll the ho- wrap the hose up after working in the yard and you accidentally run your lawnmower over it. Who are these people? I need a Tupperware out of my cabinet. So I open it up and then tons of it comes pouring onto my face. It seems so ridiculous. But watching these failure reels actually engages something in your brain. Triggers this instinct to keep you engaged. To see how they solve this ridiculous problem. No matter how silly it looks. Now, if you're younger, you might not know what an infomercial is, but think of like if you're on social media or you're on your phone app and this advertisement for, for a game comes up where this little hero is trying to solve these problems, these easy math problems. And every time he solves one, he slays that enemy and he gets to advance to the next level. And then he's met with the next obvious problem and you're all going, well, it's easily, it's this one. And he chooses the wrong one. And then the hero is slain. And then the title screen of the game pops up before your eyes and says, download now so that you can quickly fix the problem. You can jump in and show how it's really done. There's something about watching other people's failures and hearing an incomplete story that pulls us into the struggle. Leaving a story unfinished captivates our attention, making us really unable to accomplish much of anything else until we get this problem that's right in front of our face solved so we can move on. This strategy of influence is not just a modern marketing ploy to sell you some cheap phone video games, but it's an ancient method of influence that even Mark employs in his gospel. He does, he ends his story in the gospel of Mark to appeal to our own internal sense of fulfillment so that you will be captivated by the resurrected Christ. Mark's entire gospel is this dramatic action scene showing the failures of the disciples, the power of Jesus to draw you in to be captivated by the resurrected Christ. So that you can become part of the story's resolution. See, Mark's gospel is a little bit different than the other three. It's much shorter and straight to the point. He wants to present Jesus as this perfect man who came to save people from this cursed world. Jesus is the one who has power that only God has. And he uses that power for the good of his people. So Mark is moving from one power display to another power display with lots of action. And he keeps the story simple, getting right to the facts about who Jesus is and how you want to, how you ought to respond. Thirteen times Mark tells these stories of Jesus displaying his power. And then it leads the people watching to respond in fear. They're afraid. And then you're left wondering, 
What are they going to do? Are they going to keep following him? Are they going to walk away? Some people do follow, revealing that they have an appropriate fear of God, and they will follow God no matter what it costs. But other people give up, showing that their fear is merely just this short-sighted self-preservation. But all of these stories are building up to this climax here in the death and resurrection of Christ. But then in this astonishing move, we're left without any resolution. We see the weakness and the failure of the disciples, the power of Jesus on display. And then we wonder, what happens next? So you may notice in your Bibles, after verse 8, there's a few more verses, 9 through 20, that are in brackets, double brackets. And there's a note there that says some of the early manuscripts do not include these. These verses that end after our text for today aren't in the best Greek manuscripts. And later scribes had come along and they read this and they went, well, someone must have forgot to finish this. Someone must have lost a page of their Bible. This doesn't make any sense. How can it stop here? Well, maybe we'll borrow some things from Luke or from Matthew and we'll put it together. Oh, now I can breathe. Now there's an ending. But I think that Mark deliberately left it off to appeal to the Zigarnik effect in us. We see the weakness of the disciples, the power of the resurrection on display, and then we feel this weight of the unanswered question, what happens next? And this very ending forces the truth of the resurrection to sit right in front of our faces. So we must wrestle with what it means in our lives. So let's see in our text how Mark is going to pull us into this drama. In verses 1 to 3, he introduces us to the characters and sets up the redemption conflict. Verses 4 to 7 lead us to the redemption climax, and we all know how it's going to end. They're all joyful and faithful and excited to follow. But then verse 8 leaves us wanting redemption closure. We want to know what should happen next. So read again with me verses 1 through 3. To see the redemption conflict set up. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the very first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So the final scene of Mark's great gospel about the life of Jesus Christ begins with a somber reflection as we began Friday evening here when we worship Jesus hanging on a cross. Mark tells us that the Sabbath is now over, which suggests a lot has happened, actually. The previous verses at the end of chapter 15 tell us that Before the sun went down on the last day, the Jews, particularly Joseph of Arimathea, appealed to have Jesus removed from the cross. Can we take him down? We need to get him off the cross so that we can get him in the tomb before the Sabbath begins. Because Jews can't do work on the Sabbath. And they certainly don't want to leave a body hanging on a cross all day long. 
So the Sabbath is supposed to be this, this day of rest and reflection on God's prior deliverance and his promises for future fruitful life. It's hard to do that when there's a dead body hanging on a cross. So from Friday evening, when they finally get him in the tomb, until Sunday morning, the disciples are likely just sitting around feeling pretty horrible. Thinking about how everything had gone wrong. I'm, I assume they haven't even eaten anything because you can't make your food on the Sabbath. You have to make it the day before. But that day was full of Jesus' trial, his execution. So they're hungry. And they're tired. It says... That very early in the morning in verse 2, they got up. They've probably been up all night long, just weeping, struggling with this whole thing. They're tired, hungry, confused, weak. They thought the Messiah had come. They thought he would rescue them from Roman oppression, from this cursed world, from their own sin. But now, they're probably just worse off than they were before Jesus came. They had given everything to follow him, and now he's gone. It's all gone. But these women have not given up on his promises. They went to the tomb so that they might go and anoint him. Well, I read that and I I was a little confused. That's kind of a strange thing to do. Because if you look at anointing throughout the Bible and and in Mark's gospel, you see it as this this ritual that marks a person off for a unique task. It, It calls them to a great responsibility. Or you do it in the morning to wash yourself and get ready for the day. You You anoint someone to give them healing so that they will be able to return to a fruitful life. So it's a little strange to go anoint someone who died. But this simple act shows that the women had not given up on God's promises. Even if Jesus wasn't who they thought he was, they thought he was the Messiah, but even if he wasn't, he's still a brother in the Jewish family. And they, Jews, trust that God will send a Savior who will rescue them, who will make all things new, who will one day raise them all from the dead. So Jews were very careful in how they handled the body of a deceased loved one. They would wrap them up carefully in some tight cloths with some spices to kind of preserve them for a little while longer in the, in the dry land. They would lay that body carefully in a tomb on a, a stone bed as a way of saying, we believe in a resurrection. We believe that this man, this body is going to stand up and live again one day. The women came to declare hope that someday they would live with Jesus again. A day that to them just seems so long in the future. Some future day when the Messiah would come back, he would finally come and call these dry bones back to life. Like in Ezekiel's vision. Oh, for that day to come. How long, O Lord, they cry out with the psalmist as they weep approaching the tomb. With that heavy longing, they walk to the tomb, but then they know they have another problem. They ask each other, who's going to roll the stone away for us? This is another quite curious thing to say as it sets up more of a conflict for us. Why didn't they think of that before? They spend all this time preparing some spices and purchasing spices for this moment. 
but they didn't think of how are we going to get into the tomb? I think maybe in their minds, there's a little more to that question than just who's going to roll this stone away. There's more of a weight of burden. Who is going to move this mountain of a curse from our lives? If Jesus isn't the Messiah, who can be? This guy fed the hungry, thousands of them. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He calmed storms. If he's not the Messiah, who is? Who can solve these great problems of our lives? Like every story that captivates our attention, we just watch these characters stumbling through the scene. Just trying to find some solution. And suddenly they're going to get an answer. Much better answer than they expected. In God's world, the obstacles, the difficult things that come into your life, we, we make such a big deal out of. We get so frustrated with, but they are actually instruments of God to open your eyes to an even greater reality. We make such a big deal out of our problems that from God's perspective, it's like he's watching one of these infomercials, seeing us stumble around trying to wind our garden hose. But his solution is just so simple, so beautiful, so powerful that our questions just look silly in comparison. But he doesn't mock us. He has pity on us and he comes to save us. And so the focus of the women's conflicts, this huge stone, becomes the door to a greater reality for them. Let's look back at verses 4 to 7 and see this redemption climax. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were uh, alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, if the women weren't so distraught, they may have noticed some key indicators that God was still at work, such as he told you this was going to happen. Or verse 2. Verse 2 reads like Genesis 1 to me. Just back a chapter in verse 33, when Jesus died, darkness covered the whole land. The tomb was silent. It's like Genesis 1-2 to me. There was The earth was without form and void. Darkness covered the waters. And then God speaks into the quiet depths of darkness. Let there be light. And God speaks into the first day here, it says in verse 2. The first day, again, like in Genesis 1, let there be light. Now the sun is rising again. New creations happening in front of them. A new humanity has come out of the ground. But they don't yet see it. As the women approach the tomb, they see one of their problems has already been solved. Soldiers are gone. The stone is rolled away. But there's this dazzling young man sitting there as though, no big deal. Hey guys, welcome to the tomb. Their first response to this sight is bewilderment, shock. Mark says they were alarmed. 
I'm sure they just had this flood of crazy questions. Like, I, I play this game with Jake all the time in the office called Worst Case Scenario, and he has to calm me down a bit. D- did someone steal the body? Where did all the guards go? Who is this guy? Are we hallucinating? Did, nobody is going to believe us. They're just going to call us some tired, confused, emotional women. Are, are, are we going to get in trouble? How does all this fit into God's redemption plan? Oh, I wish I would have paid more attention in Hebrew class. Did we miss something? The young man speaks to them. Do not be alarmed. Why? Why? Because, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has risen. He is not here. He's risen. He's risen. How's that for God keeping his promises? How's that for proving, vindicating that Jesus is the Messiah? How's that for moving mountains and slaying enemies and taking away curses? Hallelujah, he is alive. They thought the resurrection was just this kind of far off promise that might happen in some future generation. But suddenly that thought of the resurrection came rushing right into their present moment, right in front of their face, from the realm of the imaginary to the reality of their physical existence. God's promises of salvation weren't just for some people over there, far off in the future, but were for them. In a moment, death was transformed from this unconquerable, cruel, impossible enemy to a weak and defeated foe. Everything is going to be different now from here on out. The perfect man who miraculously calmed the sea and fed thousands. He fed or healed the sick and confronted the corrupt. He raised people from the dead. He is alive. What are they going to do now? Oh my goodness. What a, what a, (coughs) I'm losing my voice. What a climax. Surely some incredible resolution is to follow this. Oh, I can't wait to see what they do. How are they going to respond? The, G, the, the angel gives them a little guidance. He tells them, Jesus told you he was going to go to Galilee and you're supposed to go meet him there. Go tell the disciples that. Meet him in Galilee just as he told you. Great. Just as he told us. Well, if you read back multiple times, Jesus had predicted he was going to die and he was going to rise from the dead. And after he did that, hey, guys, see in Galilee. Okay, that's a really strange story. So I'll just let that bounce off. But it really happened. It really did. The angel's asking him, are you going to trust him now? Do you believe him now? Your problems have been solved in a much bigger way than you imagined. Will you be captivated by him now and become part of his story? Let's see how the women respond in the very last verse as we seek with them redemption closure. What are the women going to do with this incredible news? Verse 8. This is exciting. And they went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. Ugh. 
That's how Mark ends his gospel. This is the part of the story where we expect sweet resolution. And we just take a deep breath, enjoying the happy ending. Instead, we're surprised with a cliffhanger. We just got the most incredible news imaginable. Our master is alive. He went through death. That means we can't die either. Heaven is no longer just some nice, comforting thought when we feel bad. Its reality is now dominating their attention right in front of their faces. The first response the women had to this news that the tomb was empty was confusion. But the angel, this young man, gave him an explanation that only led to more complex emotions. Notice how they left the tomb. They didn't run with joy and eagerness. They fled. The word fled means they're trying to escape danger. That's a natural response to fear, to try to run away. But that came after another natural response to fear. They froze. Another response that they trembled and were seized by astonishment. They were no longer confused. Now they are afraid. It was clear. Jesus is God. Jesus is powerful. Jesus controls death. The presence of such power and glory and authority and holiness has always brought people in the Bible to freeze in fear of judgment. Their sin wasn't just something to be concerned about in some far off judgment day. It was something they had to reconcile with now. Right now, it's like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, he sees the angels swarming around the holy throne of heaven and he gets on his face. Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and from a people of unclean lips. I'm going to die. The disciples did the same, saw and did the same in chapter four when Jesus calmed the storm. And here the women are experiencing the same thing. And what happens when people experience this mighty, holy experience with God? He calls them to follow and obey. Just like Isaiah was sent to bear God's message. So the women were called to be the very first messengers. The first missionaries sent out with this good news of the resurrection. What an honor. What a privilege. And did they go? Did they tell Mark says they did not. He says they said nothing to anyone. Just like Jonah. God had spoke to Jonah. I want to save the people of Nineveh. Go tell them to repent and I'll save them. No thanks. I'm out. But just like Jonah... They were just like Jonah in receiving that opportunity, but just like Jonah, they fled. And that's the end of Mark's gospel. This, this isn't the way we expect a story to end, which is why you see there's various endings tacked on. There's three, four different endings that scribes have tried to put on the end of the gospel because they want closure. We want closure. How can this story end? But Mark is deliberate in this storytelling. The weakness of the women. The disappearance of the men. Where are all the men in this story? Where did they go? Where are the soldiers? Where are the disciples? They're cowards. 
all of this meant to captivate your mind with this mysterious, powerful resurrection. It's meant to leave you thinking constantly about what should have happened. Makes you think about, well, what if I were in that situation? What would I have done? It places the reality of that resurrection right in front of your face and makes you examine it and ponder it and wrestle with it and beg God to give you understanding. What does this mean? What do you want me to do with this? Dig makes you dig deeper for answers to realize that the closure that you long for in this story comes when you are captivated by the resurrected Christ. When you continue the story in your life. Obviously the women overcame their fear and eventually told the disciples, right? One subtle hint is the angels is right in the angels command for the women to go tell the disciples and Peter. That's a weird thing to say because Peter is one of the disciples. He's calling attention to something. When you read something in the Bible and it seems strange like that, that's kind of a a warning to you. Stop. Ask questions. Dig deeper. Why call out Peter? Well, because church history has held that Peter is actually the authority behind Mark's gospel. Mark was his ministry partner. Wherever they went, he recorded what Peter did and he wrote down Peter's version of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So if Mark is writing it down, somebody must have told Peter how it happened. Must have been those women. But even more obviously, we know the women told the disciples. Because here we are, talking about their story 2,000 years later. We know the women told the disciples because I'm telling you their story and you are captivated by the same truth that they were. And today, that same question is set before you. How will you respond to Christ's resurrection? The abrupt ending in Mark's gospel is designed to draw every single one of you into the story. So that it leaves you with the thought of the resurrection right in the forefront of your mind. Not letting you think about anything for the rest of the day except for this resurrection that I need to figure out. I can't go have a ham with my family until I understand this resurrection sitting in front of my face. It's calling you to be captivated by the resurrected Christ. God has brought all of you here today to sing Christ the Lord is risen today. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over sin and death. Come awake. Be captivated by the resurrected Christ. Don't stop thinking about it until you do something about it. Whatever it takes. God is going to be hounding you in your life to take the reality of the resurrection, the future of heaven, of eternity, and bring it right here into your life, into your existence. Maybe it will take a great loss in your life. You lose your job or you lose some friends and you realize this life isn't all you had hoped it would be. Maybe it's burying a loved one in the ground and you stare at the dirt just waiting, waiting for them to come up so you can hold them again. 
Maybe it's the despair you have felt that you just can't overcome this temptation or this addiction. The only thing that can give you comfort or peace or victory in all of these things is seeing Christ's resurrection as something that matters today. That your resurrection in him is something that could happen today. The reality of the resurrection should be so much in the forefront of your mind that you can't ignore it. It causes these deep emotions to rise from your gut. If you properly understand that Jesus died and rose from the dead, just like the women at the tomb, it will shake you. It will seize you. It will cause emotions to come out of you. One preacher once said, if the gospel is rightly preached, you will either get angry or get saved. Or another said more succinctly, if you can't say amen, you better say ouch. The gospel should hit you and hurt you. Mark ends his gospel this way to let that resurrection smack you right in the face to cause you to either flee and forget or surrender and obey. What will you do with it? If you've come to the place where you say amen to Christ and you've surrendered your life to him, then you too are called like Jonah and Isaiah and the women and later the disciples to go and tell. You might not go right away. Maybe maybe you need some time to ponder this and to reflect on it and to wrestle with these emotions. And I would love to do that with you today. Or maybe you need a little bit more training So you can defend this and you really understand what's going on. Well, reach out to the people around you. Connect more deeply with the church to strengthen your witness. What what matters most is not your initial response, but the new direction of faithfulness you go on. Jesus once told a parable of two sons who were called by their father to go into the field to go to work. And the first son said, yeah, I'll do it. And he never went. And the other son said, that's not something I'm interested. Thanks anyway, dad. And then he felt convicted and he went into the field and got the work done. And Jesus said, that is the one that obeyed the father. And if you grasp the reality of the call Christ's resurrection puts on your life, if you are captivated by him, you will, you will go and tell. The spirit won't let you do anything else. You will tell your friends and family, your coworkers and neighbors, how can you not? It's right here in front of your face all the time. It, I can't not think about Jesus and his resurrection. I can't not long to be resurrected with him. It's the thing that matters the most to me. It's what I want most in life. It's the thing that most defines my existence and guides my emotions. So... It's the thing I will talk about the most. Doesn't matter if you're young or old, rich or poor, trained or not, man or woman, boy, girl, eloquent or a stutterer. God made the first witnesses of the resurrection three ordinary women. They weren't biblical scholars. They weren't wealthy business owners, landowners. Their testimony would not have been trusted in court. They were nobodies. They were weak and scared. They were like infomercial actors struggling with their pickle jar. And yet they were entrusted with the greatest message in history because they were captivated by the resurrected Christ.
Are you captivated by him? Don't leave here today without wrestling with the resurrection and letting Mark's story continue through your faithful witness. Let's pray. Father, show us Christ. Make this real to us. Not just words on a page. We have so many Bibles laying around that it just becomes ubiquitous. It's everywhere to the point that it becomes almost meaningless to us. Don't let that happen to us. Don't let us lose our first love. But set the resurrection so close into our focus that we cannot see anything except what we see through Christ in his resurrection. Help us to worship him the rest of this day. Help us to honor him and then go out and tell what he has done in his own life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. Amen.